Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading this morning comes from Genesis 2, verses 5 through 8 and 15. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The New Testament reading this morning comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. For anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother." Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, CPC. It's a beautiful, chilly day in August, and I love it. Absolutely love it. Well, I am Pastor Jerry Arnellis. Um, I know most of you, but if you are a visitor, I would love to get to meet you. We are continuing our series, and we're actually finishing up our series through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And today we are going to be talking about an issue that Paul sees as a growing problem in the church. 
a growing problem in the church. Now, I want to make a, an, a, a, a quick correction here. If you notice the title in your bulletin, I have diffuse. You may be wondering, what does combustible and diffuse have to do together? Um, it should be defuse. It's a misspelling. D-E-F-U-S-E. That should make some more sense, I think. Um, so with that being said, let me pray, and then let's dive into the text. Oh, Father, I thank you, oh Lord, and we thank you that we have the privilege of worshiping you. That as we sing songs of praise to you, oh Lord, that you can stir up our hearts. Hearts that once may have been cold when they sat in the pew have been lifted up, oh Lord. Hearts that may have been hiding sin had the opportunity to confess sin and be, hear the message of pardon. Oh Lord, I thank you. And I thank you, O Lord, that we get an opportunity to hear what you have to say to us from your word. So, Lord, may you guard my lips. May you guard my heart, O Lord. And may you open open our eyes to see wonderful, life-giving truth from your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, Paul, as I said, takes up an ethical issue within the church. Now, if you notice, there's, there's nine verses Paul Paul takes to this. So from that alone, it seems rather serious. This is not just something that was going on and Paul says, okay, let, let me finish off by tackling this one issue. No, it's, it's a big issue. He spends nine verses, almost an entire chapter, dealing with this issue. It's the problem of idleness. So Paul has caught wind of this, that some, congregation, some congregants aren't willing, they're unwilling to work. And we see that in what he says there in verse 10. Now, not only is it a big problem because Paul spends nine verses, but he's already addressed this issue three times. Once in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, where he exhorts the church to work with their hands and to live quiet lives. Then again, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he says to admonish the idol. There's that word, the idol. And to be patient with them. And finally, here, before Paul signs off this letter with his own pen, he says, you guys haven't fully heard what I've said. Because there is a persistent problem. You've yet to repent of this one problem, this problem of idleness. Or I actually think, and I won't go into all the reasons why, but I actually think this word should be translated as unruliness. And the reason why is because unruliness gets at the heart of the problem. You see, some people would like to translate this as this idea of laziness, as idleness, as laziness. I don't think it means laziness, necessarily. It simply means unruliness. And what does unruliness mean? It simply means to have no rule of the heart. To live by no law except your own. To do what you want to do when you want to do it, and no one can tell you otherwise. And in this situation, it has to do with work. These Christians, there are few Christians in this young church who said, I am not going to work now. There are various understandings on why these Christians weren't working. And I don't think we can pin which one. One, it could could be that they've heard that Jesus had returned. So they said, I've put in my three-week notice. No more work. Why work when the new heavens and the new earth have come to earth? I'm not sure if that's necessarily the case. Or I think Paul would have 
made that more clear. Or it could have been some economic system that was going on at the time where people could really give themselves to these high clientele and that they can just make money off of them and, 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 and climb up the cor corporate ladder. Again, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if that explains their unwillingness to work. So where should we come down? We should come down on this. They had a lifestyle, these few Christians had a lifestyle of not working, of not working. And the fact that Paul has over and over again exhorted them to work, and the fact that they are saying, no, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to work hard. I'm not going to discipline myself. I'm going to, as we'll find out later, this, their unwillingness to work was really them mooching off of the generosity of the church. Now, we don't like, we may not like using the word mooch. It's kind of crass a little bit. But we've all been around that type of person. And let's just call it what it is. It couldn't be sapping spiritually. Exhausting. And right here in verse 14, that's why Paul says to not grow weary, Christians, in doing good. Because the system of mooching, this, these, these people who were so eagerly dependent upon the donations and the housing and the food of their congregations, but yet weren't willing to work, it was exhausting those who really wanted to help. They really, really wanted to help. They had, their heart's desire was to serve these people. And Paul says, okay, we must deal with this because at the root of it, at the root of that unwillingness to work, that's where we get the word I'm referring to now as unruliness. Unruliness. Now, this, as I said, this unruliness has a narrow application, a narrow application. There's some in the church who aren't willing to work. For whatever reason, why they won't work, they're just not willing. And that's an indictment. It's an indictment. As we read in Genesis Right there, chapter 2, you saw that God created man to work. And that's one of the first principles, I think, of life. I don't think it's a stretch to say that these Christians were forgot the first principle of life. God created you to work. And for you not to work, for you to, should I say, to be unwilling to work, is a problem. Now let me clarify something. I don't think Paul is saying here those who can't work due to disability, retirement, or you may be a stay-at-home mother or parent by your choice or not your choice. Paul's not referring to people who can't work under circumstances. He's not referring to people that are in, who are in desperate need like the poor or the sick. He's not referring to them. He's referring to people who have the capacity to work but say, I won't. I won't. I will simply mooch off of the generosity of God's people. So let me give an example of what this could look like. And I think high schoolers or anybody in school know what I'm talking about when I say this. So imagine there's a group project in your class and the teacher assigns to your group seven people and you're one of the seven. And five of the seven put in all the work and two of the seven do none. You've been there. Two of the seven do none. The group gets an A. And the two people who did nothing reap the benefits of that A plus. They did nothing. Nothing. That's what kind of was going on. Just think about how your heart feels when you have to pick up the slack 
of someone who says, I'm not going to put in my effort. I think that's, what, that's what's going on in the church here. There's a group project, and there are a few who aren't, in a sense, pulling the load, except they're reaping the benefits of the church. But I think there are broader applications that follow the same logic. As we diagnose the unruliness in the Thessalonian church, we will find the same germ of unruliness can be found in other vices of our heart. It's the same logic. And vices by nature are combustible. Dangerously unstable. And if not dealt with, become destructive to the soul. Become destructive to the will. To the emotions and will quickly exhaust and destroy fellowship. So that's what Paul is after here. He is after protecting the fellowship and the communion of the church. And not just the fellowship and the, and the communion, but also the witness of the church. This is a big problem. And Paul says simply, Christ will bring his people into peace. Peaceful fellowship by diffusing those combustible sins of the heart. And here's how he does it. So first, let's look at how is unruliness combustible and how is it here so? So let's diagnose this Thessalon the Thessalonian context before we dive into similar personal situations in our lives. So first, in the lives of the unruly, and then in how it affected the church. Notice in verse 6. This is in the lives of the unruly. Notice verse 6. They were living a certain way. It says, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Now we'll get to the, the, the exhortation there to keep away from them later. But notice what it says, who is walking in idleness. Now, what does it mean to walk? Does it mean to put one step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other? No, the Bible has a much broader understanding of that. It means, it's a term used throughout the Bible, it means simply a habit. A habit. Now, what is a habit? It's the consistent Stroke of daily, moment-by-moment efforts towards a goal. And all of your habits, big and small, have a goal. It could be comfort. It could be avoidance. They all have a goal. And one of the clearest biblical passages, I think, that get at this is found in Ephesians 5.15. And it says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. So walking there has to do with habit. Do you see how it's being used? He says, look carefully at your habits, your day-to-day -day habits of thought and action, and make sure that they are wise and not unwise. But that's not what, this, that's not what these, these, a few in this church are doing. They weren't taking notice of their actions. And you actually get the sense that it was probably more like refusing to change, and it is simply to be aloof. It's not that they just didn't know better. No, Paul has told them over and over again. They simply weren't changing. Now, what's interesting is when you consider that they were probably this sort of person before they even heard the gospel. Think about that. Paul's, like I said, has mentioned this issue three times. And this, this, this church is one of the, probably one of the first churches that was formed some 40 years after Jesus Christ resurrected and ascended. This is a young church. 
And Paul comes to them, and one of the, one, some of the few things that he wants to let them know is you must work, 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 and yet there are some that aren't. So they were unruly before they even came to faith. As the old saying goes, old habits don't die easy. Do you have sinful habits and patterns of behavior that were there before you came to know Jesus? And do you see them for what they really are? Destructive? Now, the Bible has very pointed ways of describing the destructiveness of sinful habits. It uses words like they defile a person. Envy, slander, greed. There's a whole list, and it says that these things defile. And envy and slander and greed, those are all habits of the heart, not just one-time things. They, they enslave. You can't seem to break away from the habit, can't you? Can't seem to break away from it. They deceive. They have this uncanny way of making bad things look like good things and good things look like bad things. They deceive. You have habits. Oh, you have big ones that you aim for that aren't necessarily sinful, that aren't sinful. Like, you want a good backswing on the golf course or a good breaststroke in the pool or a running form on the track. And through consistent effort, you achieve your goal or you're probably still aiming for it. But you have sinful habits that follow the same logic and they're more subtle and they're far more stubborn. You see work as an unwelcome part of life. You've forgotten that God created man to work and to find some form of satisfaction and meaning in life. Or you prefer hard work over rest, as we would call workaholism. You overwork yourself. For you, you've forgotten the sovereignty of God, that the world doesn't rest on your shoulders. And you refuse to rest. You find that you can't be happy without punching in the clock. Or you're easily irritated and frustrated. Why? Because you formed a habit of reacting harshly when you don't get your way. Or it could be lust and greed. You aren't used to putting off pleasure, so you say yes to everything. It follows the same logic, this unruliness of heart. I'm going to do it my way, even if God says to stop. They all refuse to take subtle sin seriously and to put in the work of repentance. It is, so to speak, a concession to your own vice. A concession to your own vice. Any confession that Christ's ways are insufficient. And this is what makes unruliness in any form combustible. What if the most dangerous part of your sin, the most dangerous aspect of sin, is the refusal to turn away from them? The refusal to turn away from them. That's the sin underneath all sin, our unwillingness, and because of that, our inability to let go of them. 
Remember, if you recall, what Paul said of this church back in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. He said of them that he rejoiced that they had turned from idols to serve the living God. And now here we are, several months later, and they're still clinging to old patterns. Still clinging to old patterns. Old habits don't die quickly. But they don't die quickly because there is a hesitancy, if not an obstinacy, towards putting in the work to kill them once we've been set free from them, from the power of them. Do you know Christ has set you free from the power of sin? From the power of sin, that you can say no. You can say no over and over and over again and reap the benefits of victory over sin. The victory that Christ won. But we concede to it. And that's what this church is doing. They're con- these few in the church, they're conceding. Christ has set them free to walk in good works, and yet they are not walking in this one area of life. And Paul is calling it out. I think that's what Paul's getting at. The deeper problem here. That's disrupting the fellowship of the church. Well, they just weren't living a certain way. They're also rejecting truth. We see that in the latter half of verse 6 and verse, in verses 7 through 10. Paul had told them over and over again. And they were rejecting, disobeying the traditions that were passed down. That's simply the, the, the preaching of the apostles, the exhortations of the apostles. And these were instructions that they had first readily received. But in this one area of life, they were over a hard time changing. They also rejected clear examples. We see that there in verses 7 through 10. Paul says, we, we, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we set an example before you. We didn't place in your burden that we ourselves were willing to carry. And we worked night and day to not be a burden to you. And they rejected even that. They had a double grace. They were instructed what to do by word, and they were shown what to do through the life. And they didn't obey. Now, I think Paul has more. He's saying more than they didn't obey this one particular command. If you notice in verse 14, it says, if we, anyone does not obey what we say in this letter. I think, he has in, I think he has in mind all of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. So what he's really saying is that their life, their unruliness was out of step not just with, with this one command, but with the gospel itself. So that's how they were living, and this is how it affected the church. Notice verse 11. What were they? They were busybodies. Not busy at work, but busybodies. Paulus has, has a play on words there to get at something. Now, what is a busybody? Now, It looks like a person who's always exhausted, but never really works. Who has a lot of things that they're doing, but they're not really doing anything. And it gives the impression of, 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 of this word of busybodies. It gives the impression also of, of meddling in other people's affairs and, or, or, and gossiping. So because they were not busy doing good work, They were busy actively in everyone's business. Everyone's business and gossiping. Let me give an example of how this may look in our life. At least I've seen it in mine. So 
let's just say you have an 8 o'clock meeting on a, on, on, on a Tuesday morning or an 8 o'clock class if you're in school. And you wake up at 7.30. And there's a 15-minute drive to work. So you brush your teeth, you skip breakfast, you get in the car. What happens? Every light turns red. Every person is a bad driver except you. And you're frustrated and you're angry. You may say things you shouldn't have said. Then you get to work, you get to class, and you're irritated. That's what a busybody looks like. Undisciplined has caused them to be this way. And because of their unruly hearts, it led to an unruly tongue. And that's, that's simply the case. As it said that the, the tongue is the exhaust pipe of the heart, what we say reveals what we believe and what we think. And that's what they are doing. They're talking about people whispering. The, 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 the Old Testament uses words like whisper. They're whispering things about people there. You, you can see it there in the, in, in, in the prayer room. They, they use prayer as a cover for gossiping. And Paul is calling it out. It became burdensome to the people. Notice verse 13. Again, I've mentioned it before. He turns and looks at those who really want to do good. He says, don't grow weary in doing good. And the, the implication is that they were growing weary. Are you weary of doing good? Is there that person, those persons in your life that are exhausting you and you don't know how to handle it? You want to do good, but every effort in doing good is taken for granted. Not welcome with thanksgiving or any effort to change. I know people like that. I have people in my life like that. And I've said it before, there, I've said it in, in small circles, there are times that, and I'm thinking of a particular person that I, when I'm asked to go to them, I feel like Jonah being told to go to Nineveh. I'm like, I don't want to go. I'm to the point where I'm growing weary and I'd rather that they suffer the penalty of their own sin than for me to go help them. It's wearisome. It's tiring. It's depleting. This is what I love about the Bible, is that it, has, it passes the sniff test of reality, doesn't it? It passes the smell test of reality. It knows you grow weary in doing good, and it says, I know why. Here's how to deal with it. So don't grow weary. I'm not saying it's easy to discern between genuine need and those that are not genuine. I don't have the answer. I'm simply saying Paul says it's wearing, and that's how it's affecting the church, and it's affecting the fellowship of the church. So how does Christ diffuse these sins? We have that picture now. We see it. How does Christ diffuse it? Well, he simply points to himself. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. It says, by the command of Christ, in the name of Christ. I command you in the name of Christ. In the name of Christ. How do you hear that phrase? How do you hear the word command? Do you receive it readily? Or is it suspicious? I command you, he says. Now, it's sexy in our day to bulk at authority. 
And authority can reek of narcissism. So we distrust it, and understandably so in many, in many, many situations. But when we, when distrust of authority turns into rejection of authority, our hearts have made a wrong turn, a dangerous turn. Now, apparently, some form of this term is happening in the hearts of the of the few people in this church. Again, Paul three times, I say it over over and again, he's instructed them. And they no doubt have been warned more than that. Yet there's no change. There's simply a stiffening of resolve to continue down their own path. They are mooching off of generosity. And they won't stop. And we can easily forget. This is where sometimes a lot of our disobedience comes from. We can easily forget how beautiful God's commands are. How liberating they are. These Christians here who are are unruly in this one area, they're forgetting that to obey these commands is to set them free. Not to restrain them, set them free. We forget how the Bible talks about God's commands. It's Psalm 119. Listen to what it says. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Can you say that? Let your heart long for God's commands to come in and to convict you of sin and to turn you away from it. How beautiful is that? How beautiful of a picture is that? God says, Let, I want to take this thing from you that's killing you and set you free from it. And the ugliness of sin is that we say, I'd rather keep it. I'd rather keep it. Let me give an, an, an example on how beautiful this, this can look. So when I was young, I had a fear of the dark. And in particular, I had the fear of the dark because I had this reoccurring dream that there was these green witch hands that would come from underneath any dark crevice or corner, under a car or under my bed, and it terrified me, terrified me. So I had this debilitating fear. It really was. It was and my dad said, you can't be that way. Now, I hope this doesn't sound cruel, because it wasn't, but we had, a big, this, we had a big backyard, and there was this old, old uh, antique car in the back. And in my mind, it looked like 100 yards away from the back door, which was probably like 20. And my father said, stood at the back door, and he said, son, I want you to walk from here and touch the bumper of the car. I'm terrified. And he wasn't going to walk with me. He's going to stand there. So with tears in my eyes, saying, Daddy, Daddy, no, 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 no. He said, no, son, go. So I began walking slowly, walking, crying, crying over and over again. And I turn around and I look like this. And he says, son, keep going. You're not, I'm not going to, you're going to keep going. You're going to touch the bumper. So I go and I go and I can just see those green witch hands right there. I can see them. They're going to get me. So I go and I, I touch it. Fear gone. What seemed like cruelty for my father set me free. And that's what God's commands are like. What seems like cruelty sets you free. So he points to himself. 
And then he wants us to feel the sting of sin. So that's where we see these words like keep away and have nothing to do with them. And that he, he says that they may be ashamed. What does Paul mean? Well, I think this is the closest thing Paul gets at when gets at to saying set boundaries. I think that's the closest the Bible gets to saying something like that. Now, it sounds like harsh terms. Keep away and have nothing to do with them and that they may be ashamed. We'll get to the shame part in a moment. Now, you may be skeptical, and you may, this may look like to you a version of the scarlet letter. These people are marked, and they're going to walk through the streets and be mocked. Have nothing to do with them. Keep them at arm's length. Actually, further than that. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. And the surrounding context is helpful. No, just take a notice. Look, verses 1 through 5, if you were here, you heard it last week. There, he doesn't cherry pick and separate the good Christians from the bad ones. The same promises given there are given to all of them. And actually, Paul leads with that. Doesn't start with the rebuke. He leads with the grace. No, he says, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you, the good Christians and the unruly ones. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He says this to to the entire church. No. Secondly, he uses the affectionate term brother five times. The affectionate familial term brother five times, which is to say, Christian, you have not been kicked out of the family. You have not been kicked out of the family. Five times he says it. And this tells us a wonderful truth, even when we are deep in sin, whether we know it or whether we're aloof to it. If you are in Christ, you are still a brother, and Christ is not ashamed to call you brother. So I don't think Paul is saying, treat them like a virus. I think he's saying simply set boundaries. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Now, there's a point of clarity. When we get to the word shame, I know we, we hear that and that, that terrifies us. Especially in our culture, we shouldn't feel shame. We shouldn't be shamed. I think there is a difference, a slight difference, but I think there's an important difference between being shamed and being ashamed. To be shamed is to say that your personhood is bad. Like if a child doesn't clean the room and you say you're a bad boy for not cleaning the room. That's to shame somebody. That you as a person is just bad, unlovable. But to be ashamed is to feel the sting of something you've done wrong. So this shame, it's, it's not the shame of a person, it's the shame of sin. It's not the shame to defeat an enemy, but it's to win a brother or a sister. It's not one that's to destroy, but one that is to restore. That's what Paul has in mind here. And so here's what I think Paul gets at when he says that they may be ashamed. So he says to keep away and to don't associate with them. And I think he's getting at this. And it comes from 1 John. I think he wants the church to walk in the light. To walk in the light. Now, here are the verses. This is 1 John 1, 7. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. Now, here's why I think that. Because in verse 15, Paul says that we should not regard, hear that word, not regard, the unruly as an enemy. 
we're to think about them rightly. Think about them as a brother. So whatever it looked like in Paul's day for someone not to do, to, to do away, to not have anything to do with somebody, it clearly didn't involve total disassociation. But it also involved admonishing. Now, this is a beautiful pastoral word, to admonish. And the, and the very form that the word is in in, the, in, in, in this language is, it's, makes it even more beautiful. It has pastoral and fatherly notes to it. It involves getting someone to see their sins are fresh for the first time. It's like putting up a mirror for, to somebody that says, I'm not dirty, I'm not dirty. You say, no, look, you are dirty. Clean yourself. It's to put the mirror in front of the face over and over and over and over again. It's to not, it's not to, it's, it looks more like this. It's, you, it's, not, it's, it's to not hang out and spend time with somebody knowing that there's a problem and not deal with it. That's what Paul means. To just spend time and to feed into the madness and the cycle of their own sin. Paul says, no, admonish it, deal with it, don't run from it. Which tells me this that there was a double problem. That yes, there were those unruly people, but also people weren't confronting it. That's why he has to exhort them to do so. Now, isn't it easy to, not, to run from conflict? The path of least resistance. To not to keep in the dark your hurt. To keep them in the dark and their sin and how they're hurting you. Do you see how that disrupts fellowship? How that destroys it? Now imagine 150 people doing that. He's not saying to call out every sin and to be a, a detective. But he is, he is saying if it's known and it's affecting you, admonish it. That's the most loving thing you can do. It's the most loving thing you can do. So this admonishing, it, it's to deepen fellowship with Christ. Again, Paul says that it was Christ himself who was directing their hearts to a steadfast love. And the sin, in effect, was rejecting it. So to call it out is to say, no, deal with it. If you don't want to just skim across the surface of your faith, let's deal with those, those hidden things. It's to deepen fellowship. Did you notice what it said in 1 John? If we walk in the light as he, being Jesus in the light... We have fellowship with one another. That's amazing to me. To walk, if you want fellowship, there must be truth-telling. There must be. And I think this is what Paul is getting at. So when, what is the ultimate aim? It's right there in verse 16. Again, the ultimate aim is peace. I mean, the Lord of peace himself. Give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. You all. He speaks directly to both parties. To both ends of the conflict. The Lord will give you peace. The goal, as we sang and as we've heard mentioned over and over again in this service, the goal is peace. And anything that disrupts peace or threatens peace, Christ himself will defuse it. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.